One of the greatest times I have every week is that moment where I go from studying God's Word, trying to determine what it is that the Spirit is leading me to preach, to knowing what it is that we are to be covering for that given week. That is such a faithful act of God to lead and guide us. And I say it to you that way because I want you to know that I wait for God to tell me what he wants us to speak about because he knows you and he knows me and he knows what you need and he knows what I need and he is ready to give all of that to us if we would but open ourselves up to him. So I just wanted to share that as I'm thinking about speaking Jesus. You know, everything we say has an opportunity to be helpful to somebody. Take your Bibles and turn to Exodus chapter 17. Exodus chapter 17, we continue our journey. Use that word on purpose. Journey, go to verse 8. Exodus chapter 17, verse 8. If you're using that pew Bible in front of you, uh, you feel free to grab it and turn to page 80. You'll be right where I am. You know, every, each week I do a little bit of research on some things that might be totally off the wall, but... Did you know that approximately 60% of all new restaurants fail within their first year? And that nearly 80% of all restaurants never see their fifth anniversary. One of my favorite restaurants in the world is a place called Fuddruckers. Some of you may have heard of it. They used to be a lot of places. And I would travel a long, long way to eat that burger. It's a good burger. And you know me, I'm a burger and fries guy. I'll trade steak for burger every single day. But they're closing at an increasing rate. And I did research today, or I did research this week. There are only 84 Fuddruckers left open in the world. 84. And only one in Tennessee. And you're going, where's that one? Well, that one is in the outskirts of Pigeon Forge, Sevierville. That's where it is. Now, I'd have to drive four plus hours to eat that burger, but I'm not against that. Maybe we can get a party going and I'll go there together. But that's a staggering challenge, the fact that most restaurants fail. It's a staggering challenge for people who desire to open a new restaurant. I would assume that those who make it also have some consistent practices that help them succeed. So that knowledge of the failure rate of restaurants makes this list I'm gonna share with you that much more impressive. The 10 oldest restaurants in America. I'll say number one, it's actually number 10. Number one will be the oldest. Tadich Grill in San Francisco, California began in 1849, 172 years ago. Antoine's Restaurant in New Orleans, Louisiana, opened in 1840. J. Houston Tavern in Arrow Rock, Missouri, opened in 1834, making it the oldest restaurant west of the Mississippi. Union Oyster House opened in 1826 in Boston, Massachusetts. The Log Inn in Hobstadt, Indiana opened in 1825. The Golden Lamb opened in 1803 in Lebanon, Ohio. The Old Talbot Inn, this is incredible, opened in 1779 in Bardstown, 
Kentucky. The Griswold Inn opened in 1776 in Essex, Connecticut. And the Francis Tavern opened in 1762 in New York, New York. And the oldest restaurant in America opened in 1673 in Newport, Rhode Island. It's called the White Horse Tavern. That's a long time. 348 years of consistent success to keep them open. In case you're interested, since there were no Tennessee restaurants on that list, I also looked up the oldest restaurant in Tennessee. It's called, I don't know if you say it the correct way or not, Varallo's Restaurant. It's on 4th Street in downtown Nashville. It opened in 1907. Now, I know most people who desire to open a restaurant desire to see it succeed and to be passed down from generation to generation to generation. Let's stand and read from Exodus chapter 17. We're going to read verses 8 through 16. Exodus chapter 17, picking up in verse 8. says this, Now Amalek came and fought with Israel in Rephidim. And Moses said to Joshua, Choose us some men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And so it was when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed, and when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands became heavy. So they took a stone and put it under him, and sat, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and on the other, the other side. And his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. So Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this for a memorial in the book and recount it in the hearing of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called its name, The Lord is My Banner. For he said, because the Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Thank you. You may be seated. Keep your scripture up, and we're going to walk back through this, talk our way through this to see what God has for you. Because I've mentioned to you that God has something for me and for you in this time. Now, while we just read verses 8 to 16, I wanted to take a moment to sort of keep it in context and and sort of summarize Exodus chapter 17, the verses that we did not read, verses 1 through 7. Verse 1 says that they set out on their journey. Now, I was attracted, I've mentioned it once already, to the word journey. So Scripture says that they set out on the next step of their journey. Do you know what the journey means? It tells me that it's a process, that it's on the way to a destination that a journey requires steps along the way to complete it. And I see this as true for my life. I, like you, have heard probably this phrase that said, God's not through with me yet. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad that where God found you, he didn't leave you, but he's in the process day by day, perhaps even hour by hour as you seek him, of causing you to become more like he created you to be. God continues to lead us on this journey to draw us to redemption to him through Jesus, to cause us to become more like Jesus, and then to therefore bring him glory. Your life 
is a journey. The question I have is who are you following? Scripture teaches in these first verses that God leads them from the wilderness of sin where we left them last week and takes them through via Numbers chapter 33 through a place called Dopka and a place called Alush, stops 8 and 9, on the way to what Scripture tells us for today to stop number 10, a place called Rephidim. We're told in verse 1 that, uh, that this journey to Rephidim led them to a place where there was no water for the people to drink. And I read this and I'm going, no, not this again. You would think that based on what they have seen about God's faithfulness and provision, that they would trust God, that they would finally get to Rephidim and go, there's no water, but God's faithful. He's going to take care of us. And you're going, Jeff, you've mentioned complaining last week and you bitched it at the end of two weeks ago. We need to get off this complaining thing. And I agree with you. Problem is God doesn't. He continues to show it a problem to those, and, and I know that it's been a fun conversation. I've talked with many of you throughout the week going, this happened in my life, but I didn't complain. I actually had somebody come up to me at, on Wednesday, and they said, okay, did you really have a flat tire last Sunday? And I said, yes, I kept that flat tire till Tuesday. That's when they finally had time to fix it. I had a spare, and I drove all that and, and took care of that. But, you know, we get these opportunities. So did they trust God? No, Scripture says that, you guessed it, they complained again, verses 2 and 3. They even threatened to stone Moses. And they questioned in verse 7. They said, is the Lord among us or not? But God patiently responded and provided. And he told Moses to take his rod and the elders to the rock in Horeb and that he would meet them at this rock. And he tells Moses to strike the rock with the rod, and he does, and there's plenty of water for Israel. Now, I brought you through these verses to make sure that you see one thing. Look at verse 6 with me. I know it's not today's scripture, but I want to show you this. Verse 6 of chapter 17 says, Behold, I will stand before you on the rock in Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. I almost missed it. Church, I want to again encourage you. Yes, spend time every single day in God's Word, but do not rush through God's Word. If not, you can, like I almost did, you can miss something that set the tone for everything that we're going to talk about this morning. Did you notice that it said that Moses did this in sight of the elders? You know what that means? Moses did not do this in the sight of the people. He did it in the sight of the elders. Why? Why not in front of the people? Well, verse 5 tells us that it was God's idea. God said, take some elders with you to go and do this. That was God's next move on the journey. Moses, you and some of the elders, go to the rock in Horeb and you do what I say, and then you'll see what I do. So what's God's purpose? Well, I believe the word came to me is this is God's next step on the journey. It's called discipleship. Having Moses invest in others to help them grow and then become men who invest in others. It's a very scriptural model. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2 says this, And the things with, that you heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach 
others also. God is taking a different perspective. He's saying, we're building on this journey a long-term faith commitment, and what we need is we've got to invest it in certain people who will then invest it in certain people, and before you know it, it spreads out, and everybody knows about it. You know, Jesus called us to make disciples, to teach them to obey all that I have commanded you. God is creating a broader base of people that are learning about him. This should be helpful in eventually teaching the people of Israel about God as it trickles down one place, one family, one generation at a time. You see, Israel needs help. Their continual disobedience and stubborn, stubborn tendencies to not trust God will eventually bring judgment and consequences. Even if you go, we're not to Psalm chapter 95, verses 7 and 11, 7 through 11. The psalmist wrote there that we are not to be like those in Israel during this time who would not trust God. That we must work for a way to be obedient followers of Christ. Discipleship, teaching, growing, and sharing. Did you know that there are people of all different levels of spiritual maturity? I think about VBS and I think about these kids who just are on the brink of asking Jesus into their life. You know, that's, that's all they need to be able to go to heaven, but God has called them for so much more to grow in him and grow in the word so that they can be used by him to be a witness, a testimony. And that different spiritual maturity runs all the way through our church family. And I wish it were about age that the older you are, the more mature you are, but that's not always true. We've met people who are very young and very wise and very committed to God's word, and we've also met older people who may not be, but it should work that way. And that's what I love about the church. That's also why I will remain an encourager and a supporter of Bible studies, Sunday school, small groups, Wednesday night services, Sunday worship, accountable relationships, and everything like that. I was someplace this week talking to someone who does not call First Baptist home. And I met them and talked to them, and they said, yeah, I listen to you. I especially love Wednesday nights. You know what we do on Wednesday nights? We update each other. We pray with and for each other, and then we take a small snippet from Bible study. This person said, I love that amongst all of the things. And I think that's pretty cool. God desires to use everything that we do as an opportunity to teach people. That's why when we come away and we do man missions, you know, I walk away from man missions and I'm tired and I'm hot and I'm probably going to be sweaty on next Saturday. But the reality is you walk away as I'm getting in the car, I'm going, man, that was good work for the Lord. The Lord can bless you with hard work as you minister to encourage people. You know, we get to pray for people. We get to talk to people. We get to minister to people. It's just awesome. You don't want to miss it. Don't forget, we need your help for man of missions. And it's into this context. New place, no water. God says, new plan. Bring the elders, not the people. Give them water. And from, my, from what I've read about it is that where this rock came out, the water came out, and it created this natural flow into a place where all of the people would benefit from the water. And it just kept flowing as long as they were there. And it's this context that we pick up on in today's passage. It says in verse 8 that Amalek came to fight Israel. Best I can tell, this was an unprovoked attack. The enemy just 
came upon them on their journey. And in verse 9 says that Moses called for Joshua. Yes, that Joshua, the book named Joshua, the one-day future leader of Israel that only God knows at this point in time, that Joshua, and told him to choose some men and go fight. Now, when I think about this, I see this as probably maybe where the first draft happened. Israel had been slaves for 400 years. I'm not sure how well trained they were. I'm not sure how well organized they were. I'm not sure what kind of weapons that they had. But Moses said, Joshua, go choose us some men and go fight. You know what Moses knows? He knows that sometimes you're going to encounter enemies. Moses also knows that sometimes you're going to have to fight that enemy. Church, sometimes we as a church, we want to love and forgive, but sometimes there comes a time when the truth is threatened, when the gospel is threatened, when people's lives are threatened. We got to fight. And Moses says, Joshua, go pick some men and fight. This is the first time in Scripture that Joshua's name has been mentioned. And if you're not careful, you won't make this connection, but it will become more prominent. His name will be mentioned more than 200 more times in the years ahead. Time to fight. Time to face the enemy. But Israel's not yet, as I mentioned, a fighting people. This is the first time they've had to engage in battle because you realize when Egypt came, God said, you just stand back. You just watch me. I got this. So this is the first time that God has called them into a little bit of hand-to-hand combat, into fighting. You realize God is bringing them on a journey, correct? And Moses tells them to go to battle. And he goes on, he says, okay, Joshua, you choose some men and you go fight and I'm going to go up on the hill and watch with the rod of God. You know, we've actually seen this rod of God quite a bit. I actually stopped in my office and I reread Exodus chapter 1, verse 1, all the way through to today's passage. You know, it's amazing once you study this as we are, when you go back and read it, you see it totally differently. But in Exodus 4.2, we are introduced to this rod. God asked Moses at the burning bush, what's that in your hand? And Moses says, it's a rod. And that rod becomes important in that moment. In Exodus 4.20, Moses, in his return to Egypt, he's taken his wife, he's taken his kids, and Scripture teaches us that he takes the rod of God. In Exodus 4.30, Moses uses the rod of God to show Israel about God's power, about God's presence, and about God's calling on his life to deliver them from Egypt. In Exodus 7, 9, when Moses goes to his first appointment with Pharaoh, he uses that rod to throw it down to show Pharaoh that that rod is the power and the presence of God. Later in Exodus chapter 7, verses 17 to 20, Moses uses that rod when God tells him to, to strike the water and turn it into blood. In 8, 5, he stretches out the rod and summons the frogs. In 8, 16, the rod stretched out brings the plagues of lice and gnats. In 923, he stretches out the rod toward heaven and hail descends. In Exodus 10, 13, stretched out the rod toward Egypt and the locusts come. And in Exodus 14, 6, not that many weeks ago, Moses raised the rod over the Red Sea and it parts for a dry land, dry land, dry land passage. And if you're going, Jeff, why'd you say it three times? Well, if you were here on that one, you know why I said it three times and you can go back and study that. 
the rod Moses speaks of that he is going to carry to the hill is the power and the presence of God on display. Verse 10 says that with him and the rod, he goes up this hill, he takes Aaron and her with him. And Joshua obeys, which means he chooses men, arms them, and goes into battle. And the battle begins. I'm not sure how soon Moses, Aaron, and her recognized this, but did you notice what Scripture said right then? It said that when Moses held up the rod of God, Israel prevailed. But when Moses lowered his hands, the rod of God got lowered, Amalek prevailed. And they started figuring out, they're going, Moses, can you just see what's happening on the hill? Moses, put your hand down a second. Moses, put him back up. And they could just see the battle from the hill. But then the inevitable happened, Scripture says. I'm feeling it right now. You want to try this? Just stand up one day and just hold your hands out like this. Dave, in his testimony a few weeks ago, Dave, this is something he said. It's amazing how heavy your arms can become. And Moses, is, he understands that holding his hands up and the rod of God up is the key to victory down there because he sees it. But then Scripture says, inevitably, his arms begin to get tired. They get heavy. They begin to drop and he sees Israel begin to be defeated. In verse 12, Aaron and her, they come to help him. It says that they get him a rock to sit on, and they each hold up his hands. Now think about this a second. If I were sitting, my hands would not be this high. They would be this high, which means Aaron and her could come and marry. They don't have to hold their hands this high. They just have to hold their hands right here. I can tell you right now, my arms just said, thank you, Jeff. You see, Moses is now sitting. He could sit for a while. And Aaron and her are now holding up the rod of God that Moses is holding. And they can keep doing that because it's now comfortable for them. And church, we don't want to miss this whole process here. And it says that they do this all day until the sun goes down, Scripture says. Verse 13 says that Israel defeated Amalek. Now, church, this is a beautiful and important picture that we should not miss. Cannot miss this point that God is seeking to make. Hands up, victory. Hands down, defeat. What's happening, notice, did you notice that what's happening on the hill is impacting what's happening in the valley? You can't separate them. And so we're not going to. We're going to tie them together. Moses was engaging in spiritual combat while Joshua and the people were engaging in physical combat. This tells us that in order to be victorious over the enemy, we could call it Amalek if we want, or we could call it any enemy that you are facing right now. There's a key to victory right here. In order to be victorious over the enemy, we must both, both look to God and fight hard. I've told you again and again and again, it matters how you live. 
And Scripture's teaching us that one of the ways that we are to live is that we must avoid the extremes. You see, there's two extremes when we run into things like this. We simply just pray and say, God will take care of it, and we take no responsibility. God's not created us that way. Or we roll up our sleeves and we go, I don't need God. I'll fight this battle by myself. Those are the two extremes. Absolute reliance is the wrong word. And absolute self-reliance over here. God doesn't teach us to do it that way. To prevail against the enemy, Amalek, or the enemy in our lives, we must be both spiritually minded and personally responsible. Another beautiful picture. As Moses' arms grew tired, no matter how hard he tried, he needed help to keep his hands up. Have you ever tried to fight the battle? Fight the battle, fight the battle. I talk to people who are fighting different battles. Every week I talk to them. That battle could be depression, that battle could be drugs, alcohol, pornography, whatever you wanna see. They're fighting it and they're trying to do it on their own. You just cannot win that way. No matter how hard he tried, he couldn't keep his hands up. He was a godly leader and a servant of the Lord, but he could not do it alone. So just like Joshua could not fight the battle alone in the valley, you notice Moses said, Joshua, go find some men and take them with you into battle. Just like Joshua couldn't fight the battle alone, Moses couldn't fight the spiritual battle on the hill by himself, and Aaron and Hur were there. They came to help Moses. And you and me, I gotta get my fingers the right way, you and me, we need others in our lives. We need our other brothers and sisters in Christ to come alongside of us. We must, every single one of us who know Jesus as our Savior, must be ready to accept help from other godly people. And we must be ready to assist other people who need help. Perhaps you're in a battle right now and you feel alone and you feel like you're losing. You need to do two things. According to scripture, you must seek God. That's the battle on the hill. And you must seek help from others around you. God has provided them to you as accountability and encouragement and help and strength and meeting needs. Who will be there, you wonder? When I'm in the battle, who's gonna be there for me? You know, that's a challenge these days. Who's gonna be there for me? Well, I want you to hear this for starters. I will be there for you. I will. You reach out, I will be there. I don't care where there is, I will be there. Now, that's nothing special about me. That's me trying to be obedient to what God's word is teaching me. And the reality is, is that if all of a sudden we had a brother and sister in Christ come down during the invitation and say, I need help. And I told that to the church and I said, we need people to come alongside whoever this is and walk with them and pray with them and talk with them and hold their arms up. Wouldn't you do it? Some of you would feel compelled to do it. I know you would. I've had people come up to me before after service going, 
I felt like God wanted me to go say this or do this to that person. That's incredible how God leads and guides us to walk alongside and help people. You see, I'll be there for you, but I know, I know that as God is working in the hearts and lives of people who call First Baptist Church home, he is raising you up on your journey for you to, one, be helpful, for you to, two, accept help, reach out and say, I need help. Now, we are each on a spiritual battle. Let me, I wanted to read this scripture. Sometimes I'm thinking, do I have enough time to read this scripture? And then God says, if you don't read this scripture, it don't matter what you do with the rest of the time. So Ephesians chapter six, famous, well-known passage, starting in verse 11 says, this is where we tie in the spiritual and the physical battle, okay? Put on the whole armor of God, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. You see the battle, right? Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand it in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith with you which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. Did you notice there? Scripture's teaching us, one, we're in a battle. Two, there's a responsibility for us to know it's a spiritual battle and to seek God. But that's also a responsible personal battle where we are to arm up what God has called us to do. And we're not just to do it to ourselves, we're to do it for all the saints of God. And I read this, I'm going, thank you, God, because we have a daily responsibility. Somebody in here, or somebody's in here, you need to reach out for help. Your arms are getting tired, and you're losing the battle. And you don't have to, because God has made you a part of his family and placed you with this family, and you need to step into that. And then some of you, you need to go, Jeff, where do you need me? It's not about where I need you. It's be sensitive to where the Spirit of God directs you to be that help that you need to be. But then I want to show you one final thing, and we're going to have time to do this. Verse 14, it says, then, that's after the battle, after the battle, Verse 14 says, write all this down as a memorial. And look at what it says in verse 14. And recount it to Joshua. Now, I think this is an interesting development. God says, Moses, write it all down. Well, I'm glad he did. But he says, and I want you to sit down with Joshua, and I want you to take him through it. Why? In a short answer, I think it's called discipleship. You see, it's very likely, in Jeff's opinion, that when Moses took these elders to Horeb to see God move and work, that if Joshua is who Moses turns to to lead the battle, there's a likelihood that Joshua was one of the elders that had seen God work at the rock of Horeb. So Joshua was an elder, let's say. He had seen God work, but Joshua had been fighting in the valley, and he may not, full, may not have fully understood 
the battle that occurred on the hill, and he needs to understand the battle that took place. Because it'd be real easy for Joshua to walk away going, man, did you see us? I, I crushed it. Without ever having the understanding that Joshua, you didn't crush it. God crushed it. He was fighting on your behalf. And those guys on the hill, they fought for you while you were fighting in the valley. You never fight alone. You're never victorious alone. You know the only thing you do alone? Lose. Satan's only opportunity to grab a hold of you is to isolate you and to shut you up. When you open up and when you jump into God's people, help comes from all different directions. And God said, Moses, Joshua's got to hear the full story. Church, that's the full story. It's a spiritual battle, and it's a physical battle, and it's got to be both. Joshua needs to learn that he did not win the battle by himself, that God was involved. It's always God's victory. Joshua was going to be the leader one day. He didn't know that. Moses didn't know that yet, but who did? God did. And he says, Joshua's journey, it turns right here. And he begins to grow in me better and deeper. Because see, God knew that Joshua was gonna face many more battles. Some of those battles within his own people. Some of those battles in the promised land. And with the Lord, Joshua needed to understand with the Lord, those battles could be victorious. God is raising up Joshua through the spiritual and the physical battles. God is using Moses and the current events to teach Joshua that is discipleship. Church, I've mentioned to you, we must learn because we're on this journey as well. God wants us to know more about him, to trust him, to obey him, and to become more like his son. So as I close, let me take one more. Look at verse 15. Verse 15 says, and Moses built an altar. Moses, this is a recognition of God's presence and God's power that has gone before the people. And look what he names it. He says, the Lord is my banner. When I look up the banner, the banner is what goes before. Think about a parade. How do you know what school that is playing in that marching band? Read the banner that leads them in the parade. How do you know whose team somebody is for? Read the banner we put on our chest that says who we're for. That banner, and God is our banner. He goes before you. He's giving you this day. He's giving you breath this day. He knows what lays ahead of you this day and what he wants to do in and through it to grow you in your understanding of him. You have a choice. Are you going to hold high that banner of God and be victorious? Or are you going to slip? And see, we slip by not seeking God fully. I mean fully. And we slip by not allowing the resources God has placed in our lives, each other, to walk with us. And that's a huge responsibility. I don't say that I will be there with you flippantly. I realize in order for me to be effectively walking with you, I must shed myself of everything that looks like Jeff and allow God to make me everything that looks like the Jeff he wants me to be. Church, that's our responsibility. 
Now in this room right now, there are people who are hurting, who need help. In this room right now, there are people who are desiring and being led by God to be helpful. And let me tell you, sometimes it happens, that's the exact same person. You're having a need, but you wanna be used to meet a need. Church, what are you gonna let God do in your life today?